it's very, very easy to sit on the sidelines and says, yeah, this is not somebody we can save. It takes a lot of work, a lot of discipline to say, we're going to intervene here and we're going to make a difference. This is the Neurosurgery Podcast. Welcome to the Neurosurgery Podcast. Today, I am very excited to have on the show Dr. Rocco Armanda. I met Dr. Armanda here in Chicago at the University of Chicago first annual conference on neurotrauma, and this was all geared around penetrating brain injury. Um, you know, Dr. Armanda was one of the most dynamic and engaging speakers, moderating several panels during the session, and I just had to go grab him and invite him on the show to talk about any number of uh, fascinating topics we covered at that conference, but particularly today, we're going to be talking about, you know, w within the vein of neurotrauma, what's happening in American cities here at home in the States, and how some of our cities, sections of them at least, are becoming almost like war zones. So, Dr. Rocco Armanda, welcome to the show. Please take a moment to introduce yourselves to our audience. Oh, John, thank you very much for the invitation. Um, so I'm Rocco Armanda. I'm one of the uh, attending neurosurgeons at Georgetown University Hospital and work primarily at Washington Hospital Center, which is our level one trauma center. And there I serve as the director for neuroendovascular neuro surgery, as well as co-director for neurocritical care and heavily involved in neurotrauma care. Uh, my background is heavily uh, exposed to neurotrauma care in the military uh, during a 31-year career in the military, and I pretty much carried that over um, in terms of management of penetrating civilian brain trauma. And then the other hat I wear has to do with cerebrovascular disease, uh, aneurysmal subarachnoid hemorrhage, uh, ICH management, and acute ischemic stroke, and thrombectomy for stroke, as well as AVM management. So sort of the the crisis of uh, cerebral vascular and neurovascular as well as neurotrauma. Right. Uh, really just all the most time sensitive and uh, middle of the night, pull you out of bed things within our field. Uh, so hats off to you for that. And, and thank you for the, uh, the people um, that you, that you get out of bed to take care of. What's interesting about those two hats you wear is that as I really grew to learn in the course of the conference where we met is how frequently penetrating brain injuries are cerebrovascular injuries. And so it's it's interesting to see that you were drawn to those two different fields within neurosurgery. But before we drill into uh, in too fine detail into this topic, um, many of our listeners are medical students, trainees, even people in college. So perhaps first, if we could set the stage and from a very broad perspective, um, describe the pattern of penetrating brain injury, gunshot wounds, that we've seen in the United States, and perhaps from your perspective in Washington, coming from the military world to the civilian world, describe in general what this pathology is like as it presents to you, and we'll get into a bit of the discussions we had at the conference. What's the general response from your average community neurosurgeon when these patients come in? Yeah, it's really quite shocking because you know, I look at this at over a career of 30 years in neurosurgery, and really in the past decade, we've seen this transition where many of our cities have turned into war zones. So I was used to seeing these kinds of um, injuries in Iraq, in and 
Afghanistan in a war zone, but coming back to the States, I certainly did not expect it. And, you know, what we see in Washington, D.C., and we see in Baltimore and other major cities as well is that um, there's a plethora of handgun violence and automatic uh, weaponry that's available in criminals. And there's a lot of uh, injuries that we're seeing that are uh, almost, uh, in many cases, a point-blank type of uh, executional uh, gunshot wounds, as well as a lot of ricocheting uh, unintended victims, uh, innocent bystanders who are being shot as well, or victims of carjackings, victims of random shootings for drive-bys and so forth, um, which is uh, quite tragic. And it's, um, it, it's really quite dramatic to see this in the civilian sector because uh, you would not expect to see this level of penetrating trauma in a major you know, industrial city and a major country with laws and regulations. You know, Rocco, it's, it's so important what you've done for the, for the U.S. in the military and now in an urban center. And just for the listeners out there, I, I think, you know, we have all all stages of training and people in practice. And it's often joked about that if, you know, uh, you know, if a bomb went off in a neurosurgery meeting, the public health would not be altered except in this arena, right? Which is in the area of trauma and how important head trauma is. I, I often see it kind of getting relegated to like, oh, that's something for the residents to do. Um, it's, it's not something that people necessarily enjoy doing, although it's such an important part of our field. Can you sort of issue the clarion call as to why our role is so important in a trauma center. I mean, the difference between level one and level two trauma centers essentially, in my mind, is the neurosurgeon, right? Why do we have that role? What is our responsibility? You know, what what is the role of the neurosurgeon in the trauma center? Uh, yeah, that's a great question. Um, so, yeah, it's, it's almost like trauma had been sort of the redheaded stepsister of neurosurgeons, you know, the many neurosurgeons saw themselves as being above the emergency middle of the night gunshot wound patient or acute uh, traumatic brain injury patient to be bothered. But the truth of the matter is, is that's where you have the opportunity to make the biggest impact. Um, and it's a, it's an impact that's based on leadership by example. And the first thing is basically answering the call and showing up, being present. And you witness a lot of things when you're present. When you come to see a patient in the trauma center and prepare to take that patient to the operating room if necessary, you realize what is the state of your facility's resuscitation? How do they respond? Um, getting familiar, getting acquainted with your trauma surgeons, your anesthesiologists who are there in the middle of the night who are basically part of your team members is an essential part of that as well. And, and what I emphasize to all my military neurosurgeons who I'm colleagues with and, and uh, stay in touch with, as well as civilian neurosurgeons who um, are focused on trauma, is maintain your ATLS skills. You know, be an ATLS instructor because being able to do basic resuscitation in the operating room, on the way to the operating room, in a trauma bay, it's everybody's duty. And these are major contributions that you can make. Um, patients who otherwise would have been written off and this whole sense of like, there's nothing to do, this therapeutic nihilism that we can't make any difference here. 
is really not necessarily the case. And a lot of times you don't know until you actually try. And we pushed the limit in the military because that was what our focus was. You know, our focus when we were stationed abroad in the middle of uh, Iraq or some of my colleagues in the middle of Afghanistan was not to run a private practice. It was not to generate RBUs for an institution. It was basically you're part of a major trauma team and your, your job was basically to intervene surgically where it would make any possible difference, any possible difference. And so what we learned is that there was a remarkable response if, in fact, it could be done in a coordinated, well-thought-out, consistent, and standardized fashion. And so that's where it's really important for neurosurgeons to take a leadership role in neurotrauma. And then what we found was almost a third of those patients had some form of neurovascular injuries. So when we were doing angiography on these patients, we saw pseudoaneurysms, we saw carotid dissections, we saw fistulas, we saw venous sinus injuries, um, a whole host of things that led to secondary injury that we were able to address. So it's like it was sort of the tip of the iceberg. And then as we you know, studied more and more, we found more. And, and in this uh, early on, we also found uh, blast-induced traumatic vasospasm associated with these big explosions. So how that all relates back to you know what I see in Washington, D.C. and what other colleagues of mine see in major cities is that we have changed the algorithm in terms of management of penetrating brain trauma patients. And the algorithm is one that's much more aggressive in the way of surgical intervention and then looking for secondary neurovascular injuries. So to anticipate these injuries and not wait for the secondary ischemia or consequence of that. You know, your comments are so timely. Um, we're recording this on January 18th. We're about halfway through this year's interview cycle. And the first words out of your mouth were, um, you know, the most important thing you can do is just show up. And I think if you ask anyone interviewing the next class of residents right now, what's the most important thing for someone that you're going to give your, your spot as an intern is to show up on time, right? And we, we joke about it because it's so obvious as a criterion for someone who's going to be trained in neurosurgery, but it's, it's astonishing how important it can be once you're actually out there in the field, be it I'll speak as a resident or now you speaking as a, a senior attending of just showing up in a timely fashion to intervene for these things that really are time sensitive. Um, but then hearing you talk about once you show up and the interactions with the trauma service, with the anesthesia department as you take the patient to the operating room and combating that therapeutic nihilism that you talked about, this fatalism that there that seems to surround inexorably um, severe TBI patients, particularly penetrating patients, um, showing up and being there allows you the opportunity to combat that and to to be present, to motivate everyone, to show them, I'm here, I'm intervening, come on, let's do this, let's treat this, there is something to do. What was the experience like for you coming from the military arena, where, as you said, you're aggressively treating everyone, and then finding yourself in a civilian world surrounded by that nihilism? Um, how did that feel? And what steps did you take that you found were successful to try to pull those other teams along with you to aggressively treat these patients? Yeah, that's a great question. I, I think people were a little shocked because, number one, they didn't expect an attending to show up at the bedside, and then they didn't expect a patient 
with such a severe penetrating trauma to be taken to the operating room. And then they didn't expect to see these recoveries where the patients would get back to a remarkable level of independence or partial independence or, you know, a functional level that far surpassed what they would have ever expected. So, you know, there was resistance. Uh, there was some friction initially, of course. Uh, there was a lot of uh, doubt on the behalf of some of my anesthesia and uh, trauma colleagues. But then when they start seeing the difference that early intervention made and depending upon what the penetrating track involved, you know, what the recovery could be. And, you know, as I explained to them that, you know, a lot of this had to be a coordinated response. It has to be a coordinated response in terms of preventing hypoxia and hypotension and the reversal of the coagulopathy. And, you know, these are things that they became more and more in tune of because it coincides with the rest of penetrating trauma. And if you're at a level one trauma center that's getting penetrating trauma, they're used to dealing with, you know, how to intervene with hypotension, how to intervene with um, hypoxia, how to intervene in terms of preventing secondary cascade of the hypothermia, acidosis, and sort of the hypotension events that patients get when they are inadequately resuscitated. So um, there is some initial resistance um, and there's some initial doubting, but what I really try to do is make sure when these patients would eventually come back for their reconstructive surgery and cranioplasties and so forth, that they would go back to the ICU, go back to the trauma bay, go back to the different units and um, thank the nurses, thank the trauma doctors who had been involved in their initial evaluation. So it gives them that feedback so you can see how well they did. And, and I, you know, with their permission, of course, would take pictures with them and share those pictures. And so this way you give the feedback back to the teams of the guys and ladies who are on the front line so they can see what is in fact possible. But you don't do this by yourself. I mean, none of this is ever done by yourself. You need to have a well-mobilized trauma team. You need to have a well-mobilized radiology team, blood bank, anesthesia team, operating nurses, and people who are familiar with the equipment that you need. The last thing you want to do is take a patient who is incredibly unstable into the operating room who's coagulopathic without necessarily the support of your blood bank or your anesthesiologist and with a a novice OR team who doesn't know how to set up the drills or set up the room or work with hemostatic agents and so forth. So it's really training the entire team. And, you know, they get used to that. They get used to what the drill is. And the more they do it, the better they are at it. Um, there are some trauma centers that don't do much penetrating trauma. And so they tend to really shy away from surgical intervention. And that's part of that is the nature of what they see. You know, not all uh, trauma centers are seeing these type of penetrating trauma patients. So they take a, a much more um, conservative, non-interventional approach. And so it's, it becomes more of a therapeutic nihilism in those scenarios. Yeah, Rocco, it's, it's, it's interesting. I trained at LA County USC in a big city like JP. And I remember it was during the gang wars of the 1990s and Mike Levy wrote that paper about a thousand gunshot wounds in, in four, I think it was four or under five years. And it was really, you know, shocking to see this happen like 
every night. Uh, there were there were yeah. gunshot wounds to the head, and it really struck me. You know, your, your message of not being nihilistic that, um, you know, ballistic injuries even near the head or just around the periphery of the brain, often these people come in and, and it's like GCS three, right? And of course, that's the kinetic energy, you know, to the brain in general. And then the next day, they're you know they're GCS eight, right? And right. It's, it's fascinating to I mean the the, the we wrote a couple of papers with Anthony Kim, uh, who was, was a resident a couple of years below me, and very, very interesting, this pathology. But I still remember using pentobarbital coma. So tell us about, you know, what is what are the advances? I mean, there is this idea that like, well, these projectiles are designed to kill humans. So, you know, are we ever going to get better at this? And, and so have them have there been advances? Have have yeah. there been scientific technological advances? What are they? What, what should we know about? Yes. So some of the most important ones on the cutting edge is really dealing with the coagulopathy that's associated with penetrating brain trauma. You know, we, we don't know the exact mechanism, but we think it has to do with brain thromboplastin release and getting on top of that before these uh, coagulopathic uh, syndromes arise is critical. And one of the things that seems to have made a difference early on is the use of whole blood, in some cases uh, plasma as well. And so with the whole blood situation is that, you know, we use it for our massive transfusion protocol, but we've been using it as well at Washington Hospital Center in Washington, D.C. for patients with penetrating brain trauma. And we've been following patients with uh, TEG, with thromboelastography. And what we see is that when we get in the operating room, you actually have a window to operate. You don't just have the patient bleeding from every point in the brain. You actually have a chance to get hemostasis. And I think that's really a game changer. And it can be as little as two units of whole blood. And in that two units, that patient's getting the pack cells, they're getting the platelets, they're getting the factors, everything that you would otherwise give them like individually over a much more prolonged period and that would otherwise have a much longer shelf life, you know, a, a more, or I should say, less functional capacity of your platelets perhaps because they've been sitting on the shelf. So I think the use of whole blood for penetrating brain trauma is going to be a real game changer in terms of surgical intervention. And then the other thing that we've you know brought in from the military is just planning a large decompressive craniectomy is basically um, ensuring that you have an adequate decompression of the hemisphere. You know, we use numbers and so forth of 15 centimeters long by 12 centimeters from the middle cranial fossa towards midline. And making an incision that does not usually incorporate um, any kind of scalp trauma. So there's a lot of scalp trauma by the temporalis region, then we usually go with a retroauricular incision, an incision that goes more from the mastoid behind the ear all the way up towards midline. And this way, you know, you preserve blood flow to the scalp and you can reconstruct in a much better fashion without going through the zone of injury let's say if it's a lateral temporal entry. And then the other thing is monitoring patients in the ICU post decompression. And so these patients we're still very aggressive with in terms of multimodal monitoring. We're putting in uh, PBO2 monitors. We tend to use the rheumatic monitors. So we look at PBO2, ICP. We look at uh, PRX monitoring, autoregulation. We do TCDs looking for vasospasm. We do angiography looking for pseudoaneurysms. Um, so we're always on the hunt for looking for a secondary insult. And then 
a lot of focus in the neurocritical care, especially in the area of avoiding um, seizures, uh, doing continuous EEG, uh, ensuring that we're not having non-convulsive status uh, with EEG monitoring, as well as um, avoiding the secondary insult associated with hyperthermia. So all of this package combined has really sort of changed the outcome for many of these patients. You know, many of these patients in the past, if they did get surgery, they basically got sort of a piecemeal um, blood um, uh, resuscitation is what I call it, meaning that they would get pack cells and then they get some platelets and eventually they get some FFP, but it was piecemeal. It was coming in, you know, in individual units and opposed to when you get whole blood, you're getting a much more robust resuscitation. The other thing is that many of these patients got an inadequate decompression. The decompressions were too small, um, and then you'd have brain mushrooming out, herniating out. And then lastly, once these patients did get this decompression, once they got into the ICU, the neurosurgeons would sort of wash their hands of the patient and wouldn't be aggressive looking for these secondary neurovascular injuries or be involved in terms of the multimodal monitoring and ways to prevent secondary insult. So it, it's about keeping sustained vigilance on these patients that, you know, you, um, you make the decision to operate and you continue full core press on these patients in the ICU phase. You know, I really enjoy hearing those recommendations or, or points to highlight because those are things that any neurosurgeon really, um, the majority of the points you just made, any neurosurgeon in any hospital where there's a neurosurgeon can do those things. We can all do a big crany. We can all be thoughtful about our incisions. And for all of the Rush residents who might hear this, you know I'm going to mention there was a great paper in operative neurosurgery a few years ago detailing all the different uh, cranial flaps in the setting of trauma. So I, I love hearing you mention the posterior incision. I'm still waiting for the day that I get to try one. Um, and then just using whole blood resuscitation. These are tools in any neurosurgeon's toolkit. And that's an important point to consider because while, it, you know, I actually did a little bit of homework for this episode, which is out of character for me, but while the highest rates by sheer numbers of gun violence in the United States, at least back in 2021, which was a recent peak, they're in, in big states with big cities, Texas, California, Florida, Georgia, down the line. But rates per population are in Mississippi, Louisiana, New Mexico, Alabama have the highest rates per population. And these are places where they don't have major medical centers and major cities. Um, and so these basic, simple neurosurgical things in the toolkit, like a big crany and a thoughtful incision, are things that any neurosurgeon can do. But before we wrap up, Dr. Armanda, something that not every neurosurgeon can do is endovascular intervention. And that was some of the most fascinating things that were presented at the conference where we met. And obviously you have this capacity at the University of Chicago, they're getting very aggressive with this. Talk a little bit about neuroendovascular intervention in the setting of penetrating brain injury. Um, and I guess make the case for more centers to adopt this because you know, offhand, I don't think most level one trauma centers have a neuroendovascular interventionalist on call for trauma. Yeah. Yeah, so we treat it sort of the same way that we treat stroke, you know, that the uh, as a neurosurgeon, we cover for acute strokes, and in trauma, we cover for neurovascular injuries. So this extends to include penetrating neck trauma, because in many cases, you'll see in penetrating neck trauma, they'll have an associated carotid vertebral artery injury or a fistula as well. 
and you might have cases with significant penetrating facial trauma with massive epistaxis as well and have to use different damage control uh, interventions as uh, a means to control that and opposed to just external packing. So this is, again, something that really grew out of our experience in, uh, in Iraq and Afghanistan with the role for the neurosurgeon as the neurointerventionalist to, to basically, this is basically just surgery through a different route. And we're using an alternative route to perform surgery. And looking for a secondary insults where you'll see a pseudoaneurysm develop and then treat that pseudoaneurysm or carotid dissection or an associated fistula and treat the fistula as well. So it sort of got integrated into our algorithms. And, and one thing I have to say, you know, when I was in Ukraine, they've taken our algorithms and they've actually accelerated it where, you know, we used to wait until we got our patients back from Iraq, back to Washington, D.C. before we did the angiograms. That was a matter of days. I mean, sometimes it'd be a week. Whereas in Ukraine, I saw patients getting their angiograms within, you know, less than 12 hours of their severe injury. And their major medical center is very close to the front lines, within an hour, hour and a half to some of the front lines. And so they're able to get these patients back to this major medical center, do the angiogram, see the secondary neurovascular injuries, and then proceed with the neurovascular treatment and then with open surgery or with open surgery and then followed by the neurovascular treatment depending upon which takes the priority. So it's really fascinating to sort of see these ideas that you know, germinated in, in uh, our experience in Iraq and Afghanistan and be taken to the next level uh, by our compatriots in Ukraine. And it's the same thing that we try to do in our you know, metropolitan cities. We try to basically emphasize the role for identifying the neurovascular injury uh, early on so that you're not in the operating room with a, a ruptured carotid or with a CC fistula that's profusely bleeding from your um, the associated skull base injuries and penetrating trauma. So it, it goes hand in hand. I think it does. And I think this is a timely conversation to have. Um, as we've discussed on past episodes of this show, it, it almost seems like as physicians and as neurosurgeons, we're in a cultural swing where we're getting more aggressive with these pathologies that have traditionally been written off as nothing to do, be it um, stroke, be it left side dominant hemisphere MCA stroke that we're now treating aggressively uh, with thrombectomy, with hemicraniectomy, be it spinal cord injury that we're treating more aggressively, more acutely, more urgently, and be it penetrating brain injury. We seem to be in a swing of more aggressive neurosurgical care for these severe pathologies and learning as a field and as a community that we can treat these things aggressively and we can achieve good outcomes. And so we've spoken already about the nihilism that you and your colleagues have been combating, Dr. Armanda, but even outside of data that are being generated to show these good outcomes, I think that neurosurgeons carry individual cases and anecdotes in our hearts, even if we have the data in our minds. And so I wonder if as we wrap up, is there a patient that you can recall one of these where you showed up in a timely fashion, another neurosurgeon might've washed his hands and said, there was nothing to do, but you treated this person and you remember the outcome that you achieved? Oh, multiple, multiple. I mean, you know, th there's many different individuals in different places who fit that scenario where, you know, 
my colleagues thought, what are you doing? You know, this patient doesn't have a chance. And yet the patient came back to clinic, got their cranioplasty, went back to school, graduated, got their diploma, and went back to get a job. I mean, I've mm. seen that many a times. Uh, and you have to remember the cases that did well, because that's what sustains you as a neurosurgeon to basically um, push yourself, push your team, push your institution to do better. Um, it's very, very easy to sit on the sidelines and says, yeah, this is not somebody we can save. It takes a lot of work, a lot of discipline to say, we're going to intervene here and we're going to make a difference. And you have to sh share those success stories with the rest of the team. And, you know, when you see a patient like that walk back into the ICU and hug the nurses and you see the nurses cry and you see how emotional it is when people see the results of all of their hard work. You know, it's very hard for people in the ICU because they do this day in and day out and, and they're with the families and they never know what the ultimate outcome is, right? And uh, <laughs> I had this one particular patient who um, came back with his family, was so grateful, and he wrote me a little note, and this was this past Christmas, and on the note he said, thank you for taking such great care of me even though I looked like such a horrible mess. And it's just so like touching to think about, you know, truly it was a very scary thing to see brain herniating out of this young man's head and to think that he actually stood a chance at survival. And here he's writing thank you letters. Well, there you have it. You heard it first here on the neurosurgery podcast from uh, Rocco Armanda. You have managed in a short half hour to rejuvenate interest in this field of neurotrauma. Uh, I especially like that you tied in with neurovascular or endovascular, maybe one of the most exciting, most encouraging and uh, fastest moving fields that's inspiring all our young surgeons. So for folks listening out there, listen to Dr. Armando's wise words about not being nihilistic. Uh, thank you, Rocco, for coming on and sharing your time with us today on the Neurosurgery Podcast. Yeah, thank you guys both for the invite, and I very much look forward to seeing our uh, penetrating brain injury guidelines out this year to share with everybody so they have some guidance in terms of how to go forward. Disclaimer time. The opinions and ideas expressed in this show are solely those of myself, Dr. Wang, and our guests. They do not represent the opinions of any professional institution or organization. This show is for entertainment purposes only and does not constitute the giving of medical or legal advice. Listening to or participating in this show does not constitute continuing medical education or any other professional certification. It's just a show, everybody.